interoperability is king. So you must be interoperable with your competitors, with your partners, and with your customer systems that already exist. And if you can't get that done, you're not going to be successful. You're listening to Augmented Ops, where manufacturing meets innovation. We highlight the transformative ideas and technologies shaping the front lines of operations, helping you stay ahead of the curve in the rapidly evolving world of industrial tech. Here's your host, Natan Linder, CEO and co-founder of Tulip, the frontline operations platform. I don't think there's enough blog posts, YouTube videos, TikToks on standards. So we decided to do another one because Eric Bronstadt, who is the chief architects for standards, the consortia, industrial IoT for Azure Edge and platforms, Microsoft, who also have a very, very long title, is joining us. And he is going to tell us how it actually impacts the partners and the frontline operation engineers and workers who need those standards to get their jobs done. And if you don't care about standards, don't join us, but you should. So let's go. Eric, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you, man? I'm um, good. It's uh, great to have you on the show. Very apt to be here. Awesome. You and I go back quite a few years as we tried to figure out this crazy decade. I don't know if it's like closing the decade of Industry 4.0, whatever it is, but uh, spend a lot of time talking about how standards kind of play into that. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Of course. First of all, you are Chief Architect standard consortia and industrial iot azure edge and platform at microsoft yeah. i think that's one of the longest titles yeah I, I always joke i need to write my title on the back of the business card as well because there's not enough space in the front you know please explain in great detail every section of your title before we begin so first of all i started off i i built the windows industrial iot team from scratch a few years later, then I built the Azure Industrial IT team from scratch, and I've been running both teams for a long time. But my hobby was always standards work, consortium work, you know, bringing standardized interface, standardized data models, all these things into Microsoft products, you know, and differentiating through open source, right? So a standards organization, and I represent Microsoft in several of them, they get their kind of market adoption through reference implementations that are open source where people can not just read the spec, but they can actually try it out. Right? They can try it out, they go to GitHub, they download the reference implementation, they start playing with it, they integrate it into a product. So that's kind of how it works out there. It's not just about the spec, it's also about the open source reference implementation. Yeah. So, you know, I started doing more and more of that. And I enjoyed it so much that when my CVP at the time asked me if I want to do that full time, I jumped on it, right? I basically made my hobby my job. And I've been doing that now for three years, never looked back. I think it's great. So the engineering team is run by somebody else, and I can focus 100% of my time on basically advising the teams within Microsoft and how to build standard compliant software and Obviously, I continue to build those standards in those consortia, right? I mean, they want our help. They're more than happy that we're contributing so much open source. You know, we're the number one contributor of open source to the OPC Foundation. 
We're the number one contributor of open source to Digital Twin Consortium. And the list goes on, right? So there's there's all this activity that we're driving towards standardization, both inside and outside of Microsoft, that I think is critical to move Industry 4.0 from the you know, workshop POC area to production. Yeah. So before we go even deeper, I want to kind of talk about the elephant in the room. Let me explain what elephant it is. So back in the day, I was part of standard consortium myself, you know, the Java community process, for example, the Cronus group, you know, that built all the standards for the mobile industry, things like OpenGLES. And I was representing Samsung. So kind of had a similar job to you, different industry, I guess. And, you know, we all know, like, people get pretty cynical and sarcastic about standards pretty quickly. And because they're like supposed to be these places where we collaborate and define the industry and all that kind of stuff and like, you know, draws experts, but also draws the politicians, like just to be honest about it. And then it's like becomes a word soup salad, whatever combo and it, lots of meetings and lots of fights. So, you know, before we dive into the actual interesting standard work, what are you seeing? Like you're there. Yeah, I think there's generally two types of companies participating. There's what I call the lurkers, right? So they just show up and they don't say a word and they just basically want to know what's going on, but they're more concerned that they may miss out on something, right? And then there's the companies that are actually actively contributing. You have much more highly ranked people from those organizations actually involved, right? And you can see immediately how serious a company really is about particular standard by the type of people they send to the working groups, right? But Eric, tell, tell me what are people fighting about now? That's what we want to know. We know the standards are great and doing all these things, but where's the blood? So the fights are usually around the details, right? I mean, especially if they've already started implementing a standard and you're still developing it, obviously that can cause churn. Quite frankly, when you are an early adopter and you want to obviously take advantage of that because you're first to market, right? With a product that is standards compliant. You must also take into account that things may change and you're one person around the table with one voice and one vote, right? Right. So you need to be 100% agreeable to the fact that things may change and you have to go back to your engineering team and say, actually, we need to change it again to keep it standard compliant. And that's that's a challenge. And I mean, usually the fights are around the details, but quite frankly, most of the time, we all want the same thing, interoperability. Because interoperability gives you scale and scale leads to revenue, right? Right. Everybody can build a snowflake. Building a snowflake is easy. Mm. It's not going to work with anything else, especially in the manufacturing industry where you have a hugely fragmented market interoperability is king. So you must be interoperable with your competitors, with your partners, and with your customer systems that already exist. And if you can't get that done, you're not going to be successful, right? Yeah. I don't know if you would agree to that, but let me try something characterized. So I think we're past the first stage where the key infrastructure cloud players are entering the, the stage, which is awesome. We, where were you guys? Okay, we were waiting. <laughs> yeah. That's great. 
But, you know, we have the traditional sort of automation incumbents like the Siemens and Rockwells of the world and those guys, you know, great companies building awesome product to automate everything. But each one of them own like a fifthdom of legacy protocols. And that, that has been sort of the way of the world. And then they have like the galaxy of Siemens versus the galaxy of Schneider and so on, right? Yeah. And the reality that it changes the supply chain and the distribution methodology and the integration folks and all that kind of stuff. And of course, people span and do all these kind of stuff, but it's, but we kind of lack true openness, like in the full sense of word. And I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to ask you is like, do you believe like from where you're sitting that the real shift to open protocols, like, let me explain, you know, if we did not have TCPIP, it would have been an ethernet. It would be pretty difficult to imagine HTTP as we know it and all its evolution, right? Yeah. Are we at that moment, like from standard and their evolution, like from your perspective, or is it still too early? Depends. I mean, certainly I think the era of the walled garden ecosystems is over. It's just like, ba-bam, it's over. It's over, yeah. I mean, you know, look at what happened at the field level, right? I mean, you, you got to differentiate what level, you know, in the industrial automation pyramid we're talking about. So I would really think that at the field level with OPC way, you know, field level FX, you know, field level communication, the field bus war was ended. Yeah. And I think similarly on the OT network, OPC way became standard even earlier, right? I mean, nobody questions that anymore. And even all the automation companies have understood that. And not because they woke up one morning and said, oh, Let's change strategy. No, it was because the end users, the manufacturers demanded it. I know so many large manufacturers who have OPC away in their requirement specification. They say, I won't buy your software unless you give me a standardized interface based on OPC away. And they even go further than that now and say, well, that's the interface, but I'm also only interested in standardized data models because quite frankly, you know, people ran around in the 90s and said, oh, data is the new oil, right? They were wrong. It's not the data that's the new oil, it's the data model. Uh, can I provocate you? Maybe like, I know you know the answer and like you're going to destroy me, but I'll try anyway. Why do we actually need the OPC way if we can like just have MQTT native and hardware accelerated? So that's a, that's a classic. Right? Listen, you know, now in my, our listeners don't see you, but Eric is now smiling. Why uh, Nathan is like, brace, brace. The, the answer is yes, we need both. Uh, I always think that, you know, and there's a few companies, especially in the US, that want to only talk about OPC Way in the OT network, OPC Way client server. But for the last five years, OPC Way has been extended to also work with a publish subscribe communication pattern, you know, that we call OPC Way PubSub for short. And it leverages MQTT. Right, it's based on MQTT since OPC Way is generally transport protocol independent. You can use different transport protocols, but the factor standard is MQTT, right? So from that perspective, of course you can use OPC Way with MQTT, and that's in fact what all the major automation companies now use, and Amazon and Microsoft, right? So the two big cloud companies also standardize on OPC Way with MQTT. I see. And how does that read on things like, say, MT Connect? And it's a more general question is like, is OPC UA and MT Connect together and separately is pretty much our core protocols for the next couple of decades at least? 
Yeah, and there's a, you probably know this, right? But maybe the listeners don't. I mean, OPC Way keeps getting extended with so-called companion specifications. Companion specs. Yep. So within the companion specs, you can do two things. You can either define a new data model, for example, for a particular machine type, which then gets standardized through the OPC Foundation, mm. or the other big use of companion specifications is to actually create a mapping from a different standard to OPC way. Mm-hmm. And that's what was done with MT Connect. I think they're up to version, I forget what version they're at now. I know there was, there was just a revision recently for MT Connect to OPC way mapping. So if you have a machine that is MT Connect compatible, you can buy software off the shelf that will convert the MT Connect data model into an OPC way data model. And then of course you can use OPC way pops up with MQTT to effectively send MT Connect data to your analytics software for analysis, right? So it's it's compatible. Or to your no-code, low-code for operation software, say. Right, exactly, exactly. You know? And I mean, the MT Connect Institute, the OPC Foundation have a very good relationship. We're working together. And I, I think really there's no conflict here at all. In fact, they're collaborating. And again, it's all around interoperability. And I have several customers actually that use exactly that combination of MT Connect and OPC Way and OPC Way pops up to the cloud, right? So no problem there. Where do you see this going before we play our favorite end of show game, which is the buzzword bingo? <laughs> Let's start with like the hottest buzzword right now, burning through every Google search every day, which is OpenAI and ChatGPT. Are we ready for that? I think we are. And it really depends what you use it for. So yeah. We're actually working with Siemens on using OpenAI to automatically generate the data model for fixed function assets, industrial assets that probably don't have OPC way built in because they're so small. Think of energy meters, pumps, valves, sensors, that kind of stuff. And wouldn't it be great if we could automatically onboard those kind of devices and map them to OPC way automatically? Yeah. Right now, what people need to do is they need to find the spec, they need to read the spec, and then they need to manually map. I don't know, those devices usually have like a handful of tags. Let's say they have 50 tags, right? Yeah. You need to manually map these 50 tags, get their name right, get their address right, get their length right, get their unit right, and manually type that into your favorite industrial connectivity software. Wouldn't it be great if that whole process could be automated? And that's exactly what we've done together with Siemens using ChatGPT version 4 and our Azure OpenAI service. And we just demoed it at HMI, got great feedback from the audience. We got lots of follow-up, you know, people blogged about it. So I think we're onto a winner here. And I think it's a real advantage, even if the model isn't perfect, even if it's 90% perfect or correct, let's say, you just generate that into your editor, into your connectivity software. You eyeball it, you fix it, and then you onboard the device. That's exactly the gist of demos I think you saw as well that we, Tulip, put on with Microsoft where exactly with this sort of interaction paradigm so that that is fundamentally human in the loop because, you know, I think the hype train that is going very fast now, it's like, oh, well, ChatGPT will do it. And it's like so ridiculous because it's, first of all, we understand what this thing is good for. And like your example is so perfect. Like the finite nature of, you know, small amount of tags, highly structured for the meters or for, you know, those devices 
lend itself well to like generating something that a human can refine, finalize. And there the game is just, okay, and there's just a good author that uh, saves time, but you still need to check it for all the things to make it work. We're doing the same. And we put together apps that you can just use natural language. And because it has like a, in, in 3.5 and 4, like a large enough human language models, you, you, know, you don't need to define error codes. It will just say, oh, this is an end on event, or this is a machine down, or this is a timing issue. And it would just start classifying things that your industrial software should classify. So that's like a simple example. But the stuff, you know, in our low code side of the house that will come out at some point is um, things like, oh, we allow people to build custom widgets in Tulip. So yeah, we'll have another field that say, build me this special gauge. I want it red and green with these kind of parameters and it will just do its best to give you something that works for your description. You might need to iterate and deal with like the prompt engineering as they're starting to call it. But at the end of the day, you'll get a piece of working JavaScript and HTML and CSS and like you'll tweak it and you hit publish and you have a new widget in Tulip and you didn't need to take it to a shop or hire an IT person to do it. Right. And I, I, th- I think that's going to happen faster than folks. Yeah. I think, Nathan, it comes down to seeing it what for what it really is. It's a tool. It's a tool to make your mundane jobs easier, right? It's not here to replace you. It's here for you to focus on the things where you can add the most value, right? Yep. And I think that's exactly how it should be used. And then everybody wins. And that's a great note to jump into the last section of our show, the buzzer bingo. You ready? I'm ready. The way this game is played, you don't need to think so much because, you know, it's kind of supposed to be like funny and off the cuff and but somewhat serious too. I just say a buzzword and then you give me one or two sentences. What that means to you today or maybe what that it will mean in the future, you pick. Okay, cool. So here we go with the first one. Digital transformation. We're on a good path. All right. Digital twin. A tool to define your asset more accurately. Metaverse. A great way to invent new use cases that will help people get safer and more secure in their job at the factory or on plant. Amazing. So I think you win the prize of not being negative about any of your buzzwords. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I can say, especially people say, ah, oh, yeah, it's just a fancy dashboard. Well, we'll tell that to the expert that needs to do flight training to be shipped out to an oil rig because some machine at the oil rig is no longer working, right. you know? And if a person on the oil rig instead can wear an augmented you know, headset like HoloLens and the expert who can fix the machine sees what he sees, you know, on premises and can talk him through fixing the machine without having to fly out there, I think definitely much better because I don't know if you know, but flight training for going out to an oil rig involves being fully suited up, buckled it to your seat, and then submerged in a tank of water where you have to free yourself and then swim. Yeah, evacuate the helicopter. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean, that is certainly something that I want to avoid, you know, so. You know, every time the stories like that give digital transformation meaning, because we, we think about offices and backend, whatever, and the world we live and operate in is so physical. Eric, on that note, so good to have you on Augmented. My pleasure. Appreciate the time and the insight. It was a lot of fun. We should do it again sometime. Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. And uh, we'll see you soon. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Augmented Ops Podcast from Tulip Interfaces. We hope you found this week's episode informative and inspiring. You can find the show on LinkedIn and YouTube or at tulip.co slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time.